scripture reading said, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. I hope very much that uh, our meetings don't do more harm than good, but um, we should certainly pray. Lord, we ask that you would bestow upon us your Holy Spirit, that our ears may be open to hear your word, that our hearts may be open to receive your word, and that you would make us obedient to respond to all that you have to say to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian life begins when Jesus calls you to follow him. And the life of a faithful Christian is a joyful life, but it can also be a challenging life, demanding great sacrifice, demanding discipline and determination. And we need the help of one another if we're going to endure as followers of Jesus. We're strengthened in our commitment to following Christ by being formed into a new community, a family, a household, a partnership. That's what we are together here. And St. Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. He says that we belong to one another. None of us are dispensable. We all have a part to play. We are built together to be a place where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And he prays in his letter to the Ephesian Christians that the whole of this new community, those adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, us, that we may be rooted and established in love, that we may know the height, the depth, the width, and the length of God's love for his children. Over the next three months we're going to be exploring what it means to live in this love, how we play our part in Christian life together. We're going to consider the foundations of our faith, how we become rooted and established. We're going to consider how we lift God higher in our praise and worship, how we grow deeper roots through Bible study and prayer, how we reach out wider in mission evangelism, and how we keep on going longer by encouraging one another and uh, in our life together. But today I want to continue to think about Christian beginnings. Last week, um, we explored the subject of repentance and faith. That is the way that we uh, respond to this gracious gift of salvation that God offers us through repentance and faith. We discussed the fact that far from being a negative concept, actually the daily practice of repentance by Christians is a way of reorienting ourselves towards God. It's a way of turning from darkness to light. It's a way of leaving behind um, that part of us which is always concerned with ourselves, that can be greedy, selfish, capricious, whatever it might be, and turning ourselves back into God's love. Indeed, it's repentance which turns us towards God so that by the gift of faith given us by the Holy Spirit, we can reach out hands and take hold of the gift of life that is offered to us. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. And his spirit enables us to reach out our hands and take hold of that which is offered to us. It's given us as a free gift. But that free gift involves the spirit leading us in repentance and faith. So we talked about the centrality of repentance and faith to the whole of our Christian life. But I want to acknowledge now one way in which what I spoke about last week was only partial. It was somehow incomplete. Because repentance and faith are things that happen inside of us. They are, if you like, the responses of our hearts. 
but there's not necessarily any visible sign of them. It's not always clear that there's an indication of their presence in our lives. Your own experience of repentance and faith will often be played out in the quiet inner conversation of prayer that you have with God. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And you see what Paul is saying there is that as well as believing in our hearts, if you like the inner act of repentance and faith, there must also be an outward sign, a confession with our lips, a a proclamation, a a visible indication that our lives are now given over to following Jesus. Actually, it's important that we can say, yes, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is my faith. You might not share it, you might not like it, but it is who I am. It is my faith. I, I really do believe it in my heart, and I'm not going to kind of keep it quiet. I will share it. Since the very earliest days of the Christian faith, the church has demonstrated this outward visible sign of what's going on inside us, this sign of repentance and faith, through baptism and Holy Communion. So not just through the, the kind of confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but also through, through things that we do in church together. Things which are done to us in the name of the church in baptism as we're initiated into the Christian community. Things that we do together week in, week out as we celebrate communion. Baptism and Holy Communion, which are my subject today, are described as sacraments. Sacrament comes from a Latin term meaning holy mystery. There is a sense in which there is a mystery in Baptism and Holy Communion that we will never fully fathom. We will never plumb the depths of the enormity of what God does for us in Baptism and Holy Communion. They are gifts to us from God, and, and in that sense... They are always above and beyond our capacity for rational understanding, but they are to be received and experienced. They are holy. But nonetheless, the traditional definition of a sacrament can be helpful for us. It derives from St. Augustine in the earliest centuries of Christianity, and, and it says that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Let me say that again. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. That is to say, baptism and Holy Communion are the outward signs of repentance and faith. Now there are visible signs as well, such as a transformed life, such as a life bearing the fruit of the Spirit, such as kind of people being willing to say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, such as a life lived in obedience to Christ. All of these things are also outward and visible signs that repentance and faith is going on. But baptism and Holy Communion are important signs given to the church. And obedience to Christ is another important aspect of why we celebrate these two things. Jesus commanded us to do so. In the account that we heard read just now by Olivet, Paul recounts Jesus' words on the night before his crucifixion. So he's at supper with his friends, with his disciples, and uh, he gives them this peculiar new ritual. He's actually at supper, he's celebrating a Passover meal with them, but he transforms the meaning of the Passover meal by giving them these new elements, breaking bread, sharing it, saying, this is my body. Take it, eat it, 
do it to remember me. This is my blood of the new covenant given to you. He gives his disciples, his friends, bread and wine to share. And he says, uh, this is my body and blood. Hoc meum corpus est, if you like Latin. This is my body. This, this is it. I'm giving it to you. This bread is my body. Jesus' disciples were to remember him every time they shared bread and wine together. So it was a command. This is now what you do. Now, of course, we celebrate Holy Communion in um, a sort of formal and ritualized way when we gather together uh, in church every week. And we do that because it's important that we're doing it across our diversity. Um, So we're not all blood relatives here. Uh, We're not even necessarily all friends. You may not know everybody here. I'm sure you don't know everybody here. And yet we recognize the oneness. We recognize the unity. We recognize that we've been drawn together into a family, into a household here in the church but actually as well when you're at home you know sharing dinner with your family with your kids with your friends you also when you're sharing bread and wine can remember Jesus slightly different kind of thing it doesn't necessarily have the same scope of diversity it's not recognizing quite the same degree of different people from different nationalities different cultures different ages different generations all being brought together in unity in Christ but whenever we eat bread and wine and we give thanks we can remember what Christ has done for us. So Jesus commanded us to remember him as we share bread and wine. Uh, In obedience to him, we do. Similarly, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples and he commanded them to do something. He said, go into all nations, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a command given to his followers We are Jesus' disciples, we're his followers, so in obedience to him, we celebrate baptism and holy communion. But what actually are we doing in these rituals? What do they mean? Let's look at baptism first of all. Now, as far as we know, Jesus never baptized anyone, and yet he commanded baptism as a sign of the new life that begins when we turn to God in repentance and faith. Baptism is given as the, if you like, initiatory Ritual, the, the way in which we begin our new identity in the church. Baptism was being practiced by John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, as a sign of repentance. And indeed, Jesus modeled to all humanity that this was needed, that repentance was needed by being baptized himself. You remember, it's depicted in the stained glass window just over there. Jesus came to John at the River Jordan and said, I want to be baptized by you. Why? Why? Well, Jesus' baptism seemed to be showing us that he has taken on the fullness of fallen humanity in his incarnation. And that if even Jesus can be baptized as a way of being reoriented to God the Father, so too can all humanity. Baptism involved ritual washing. Now, this was widespread at the time of John the Baptist. There were other groups, other sects, who had some kind of ritual cleansing or washing, often on a repeated basis. It was a sign of being cleansed from sin, cleansed from the past. And the waters of baptism still carry that same symbolism. We are washed clean in baptism. It doesn't always look very dramatic when we're by the font and we're just sprinkling some water over a baby's head. But if you've been here when we've had a full immersion baptism outside in the gardens or you've been at a, I don't know, a swimming pool or seen a full immersion happening here, it's much more powerful, isn't it? A powerful image of somebody going all the way into the water and being brought out every part of their body washed and cleansed. We're washed clean in baptism. The past 
is gone, forgiven. But the water also symbolizes deliverance and rebirth. It symbolizes deliverance from the enslavement to sin and death. The Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea to escape enslavement in Egypt. They passed through the waters of the River Jordan to enter into life in the promised land. So too, in baptism, we are invited to pass through the waters of baptism from slavery to the powers of sin and death and to enter into the life of the new creation. Paul describes this really vividly in Romans chapter 6 where he talks about being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised to new life. It's a rebirth. We are delivered from the powers of sin and death as we rise up out of the watery grave in our baptism. Jesus and Nicodemus have a conversation about uh, baptism in John chapter 3 and it happens by night and Nicodemus gets a bit confused because Jesus says uh, I tell you that you must be born again and Nicodemus says well how can a man once grown climb back into his mother's womb and be born again and Jesus says no you've got it all wrong flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit when you are baptized you are spiritually reborn you experience a second birth you are born again in fact there's an old um that at a national prayer breakfast George Bush Sr. once quipped to one of his aides that he was the only Christian in the room who was born once Um, because of course you know it was a quip about the fact that all the Pentecostal pastors were kind of clapping and waving and singing in tongues and were born again Um, and he thought he'd only been born once but actually there's no such thing as a born once Christian you can't be a born once Christian you have to be born again you have to be born of the spirit that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Our natural birth is not enough. We need the regenerative power of the Spirit in baptism. So baptism symbolizes cleansing from sin, washing, deliverance from the power of sin and death, rebirth into a new life. Baptism is offered once for all for the forgiveness of sins. It's not our baptism that forgives us our sins. It's Jesus' death on the cross that forgives us our sins. But just like last week, we demonstrated the idea that something is offered us by God's grace, but it's our faith that takes hold of it and receives it. Baptism is a sign of that faith which takes hold of that which is offered to us. If you're ever asked, when were you saved? The answer is not 14 years ago on a scripture union camp or not kind of two years ago after an Alpha course, it was 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. None of us have access into forgiveness, into new life. None of us are set free from the powers of sin and death apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is where we take hold of that gift. We don't need multiple baptisms. Ephesians 4 says that we believe in one baptism, we don't need to be rebaptized if we're feeling spiritually dry or if our faith feels weak. Baptism is about what God has done in our life, what God does in our lives, breaking evil powers and offering rebirth. When it's done, it's done completely. God is good for his words. He's true to his promises. If God in baptism says you are reborn, you are set free from the powers of sin and death, you are delivered from slavery to sin and death, brought into new life, you are knit into Christ, then it is done. 
if we seek to be rebaptized, we call God a liar the first time. We make out that somehow his promises were less than adequate. Now, I don't mean to criticize because this issue divides churches and it divides Christians. And some Christians will have been um, christened or baptized as infants, but then felt as though it was a bit meaningless and never really meant anything. And then as an adult, their faith came to maturity and they wanted to express their obedience to Christ and they have gone and been baptized again. And some have been part of churches where that's commended or invited or offered. And I don't mean to kind of criticize anyone who does that because I know that even amongst our number, there are probably some of us who have been baptized twice, three times, four times, who knows. Um, But the point of why in the Church of England, in the mainline denominations, Roman Catholics and Orthodox, we don't offer it, is we believe God's promises. We believe that God is good for his word and that we don't need to go back. We will certainly offer opportunities for people to renew their baptismal vows. So every time we have a baptism service, we invite people to renew our baptismal vows. But in a way, we have, our, we have another ceremony for that. It's called Holy Communion. I'm going to come to it in a moment. We renew our participation in the active life of Christian faith through Holy Communion. Baptism is sometimes described as an effective sign. That is to say, it, it affects, it puts into effect that which it symbolizes. We really are washed clean. We really are delivered from sin and death. We really are spiritually reborn. We really are mystically grafted into Christ. All of those things that baptism symbolizes, it actually does. You can see now why this comes to us as a holy mystery. It's slightly beyond our own rationality, our own ability to comprehend. We have to receive it as gift. Now, the most characteristic phrase used by St. Paul in the New Testament to talk about Christian community is to talk about those who are in Christ. And Paul uses that language to suggest that our identity is found in Christ in a profound way. We no longer exist as individuals. We are made a family. We are knit together with Christ. We are his body. 2 Corinthians 5.17 uses this language. In the Greek, it simply says, in Christ, new creation. Your Bible will probably translate it, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not that. It's just in Christ, new creation. As simple as that. When we're baptized, new creation is established in our life. Breaks through. We are given the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in a special measure at our baptism. In fact, in the traditional baptismal rite, uh, the, the bishop baptizing would, after, after the kind of washing in the water, would anoint and then lay hands on the head of the candidate and pray for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the early church, only bishops baptized and then laid hands on and prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and fill that believer because the bishops were the leaders of the church. They were the ones who represented the Catholicity, the the oneness of the church, the wholeness of the church across different places and across different areas. Of course, as the church grew and there were more and more people wanting to be baptized, there weren't enough bishops. They couldn't manage it. So they appointed priests or presbyters or vicars, vicars to vicariously do what the bishop is supposed to do. Vicars vicariously do the bishop's job on his or now her behalf. And then the bishop comes every so often, as he does here, and confirms all those other baptisms done in the church. So that's, that's a bit of the history of confirmation. Confirmation was never intended to be a separate rite. It just drifted apart because of history, because of size, and because of practicalities. 
We are thinking about making some changes to the way we do baptism and Holy Communion and confirmation here at St. John's. And one of my fears about confirmation, uh, some of you will have never heard of confirmation. Some of you will think confirmation is the most important thing there is in the church. Um, We'll all have slightly different experiences. But one of the things that has sometimes happened is that confirmation has been confused with graduation. So we get a bunch of 11 or 12-year-olds and Sunday school has just finished there's no Sunday school provision anymore, and we don't know what to do with them. So we think, let's confirm them. And it's a bit like giving them a mortarboard and a gown and a diploma and saying, see ya, you know, come back in 20 years, perhaps. Uh, and I think that's really dangerous, because actually that's how we've lost a whole generation from our church. We thought that confirmation was a kind of graduation. It's not. Uh, we're thinking much more about confirmation being something that young adults do, as a way of saying... I've been raised by my family, I've been supported, I've, I've, been, I've been engrafted in the church, I've, my faith has grown and been cultivated, and now I'm setting out into adult life, and I want to do so with full confidence that I'm a Christian, that I'm a follower of Jesus. We think that confirmation should be a bit more like getting a driving license. You've had your provisional license, you've gone on your lessons with your dad sitting in the passenger seat, and now you're free to go. You're going to go to university, you're going to go to work, you're going to go and travel, you're going to do whatever you're doing, and now you're going independently, as it were, with a license to go. We think that's probably how confirmation might best land and fit. Let me speed up a little bit because I'm waffling a bit too much about baptism. I said that it's um, the sign of the new covenant that Jesus has made for us in his blood by his death and his resurrection. It's a trustworthy promise that God Uh, has made for our lives that he'll never leave us or forsake us and he's with us to the end of the age now if baptism is the sign of entry into this new covenant community it's the way in which we are grafted into christ and we um, become part of god's family then holy communion may best be described as a covenant renewal ceremony it's the means by which we persist in the christian life begun at baptism Let me give you four names that we use for Holy Communion and uh, give you four angles or four ways of thinking about the benefits uh, of Holy Communion and and what it does for us. Firstly, we call call this meal, the bread and wine, a Eucharist. A Eucharist, it's a traditional word for it. It comes from the Greek word evchristo, meaning thank you. Uh, So the Eucharist is a Thanksgiving meal. It's a meal in which we remember what God has done for us. We remember Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and we thank him. Thanksgiving is a way into God's presence. Psalm 100 says, enter his courts with thanksgiving, his gates with praise. When we thank God, it's as though we have a key that opens the door into his presence. Our lives can be dominated by um, obsession with self, obsession with who we are, and and we can get plagued by envy and self-pity. They're two sides of the same coin. Envy is when we look around at other people and we sort of uh, wish we had what they had. Self-pity is when we look at our own lives and we feel like we've been dealt a bum hand and we feel like we're victims. And, and, and they're both deeply destructive of our relationships with others and our relationship with ourselves. And thanksgiving is the antidote to both. Thanksgiving looks at all that God has done for us. It looks at our lives. It says thank you. We always have something for which we can thank God. So a Eucharist, a thanksgiving meal that brings us into the presence of God. And then a Lord's Supper, this meal of bread and wine, a Lord's Supper. It really is a nourishing meal. Now, there are historic debates about what kind of nourishment we are receiving in the bread and wine. And you know that 
you know, 500 years ago, a big debate and a big new movement was set off when Martin Luther banged his 95 theses into the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and the Protestant Reformation began. And on all these debates about what was actually happen, happening in the bread and wine of Holy Communion began. There was one theory called transubstantiation which said that in communion, um, when the little bell rang, the bread became flesh, substantially flesh, and, 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 there was a, uh, and that the wine became blood. There was another theory called consubstantiation which said that the bread is still there but there's flesh alongside it and the wine is still there but there's wine alongside it and they coexist. And then there was another reformer named Ulrich Zwingli who said, no, 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 it's not any of those things, it's just a handy visual aid. It's just a handy visual aid to remind you of what happened. Now the mainline reformers, Calvin in particular, took a different view. He said, no, God really is present in the bread and wine, but it's a spiritual presence, not a physical presence. It's a, it's a real presence, but it's a spiritual presence. He says, when you receive the bread and wine, the Holy Spirit is inhabiting the bread and wine to nourish you, to, so that God gives you himself in the bread and wine, but he gives himself to you spiritually. G.K. Chesterton said, the real question is not uh, so much as to whether the bread and wine can so be transformed to bear the presence of Christ but whether our lives can so be transformed as to bear the presence of Christ. So it's a Eucharist, it's a Thanksgiving, it's a Lord's Supper, it's real food, real presence, spiritual presence, nourishing us for the journey. Then it's a holy communion, a communion, a, 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 a community, a bringing back together, a remembering Christ, remembering as in the opposite of dismembering. Dismembering tears things apart, remembering puts things back together. One of the reasons why communion is so important in a church like ours is we probably won't see each other again through the week. Some of us will, some of us won't. We've got different jobs, different lives, different homes, different cultures. We're going to spend our time in different ways. But we are the body of Christ. We are all indispensable. Some will be a hand, some a foot, some an eye, some a head. We are all members of one body and we are remembered. That's why it's so good to look around at one another during Holy Communion. That's why we share the peace with one another. Because we acknowledge the presence of Christ in one another. We are reconciled to one another. If we've got a grudge or an issue with one another, we've got to sort it out before we share the peace. We've got to lay it aside. We don't all have to like each other all of the time. We won't. Of course we won't. But we do have to love one another. We do have to forgive one another. And the peace enables us to do that. There'll be times when some of you won't like me very much, but when we prepare for Holy Communion, uh, not too many times, I hope, and you've got to share peace with me. It's part of what we do. We love one another. We forgive one another. It's our calling. Uh, so it's a Holy Communion. Interestingly enough, when Jesus celebrated that Passover meal, something profound happened. Passover meals were supposed to be celebrated in your home with your family. Jesus found an upper room and celebrated with his friends. He said, you are my family. You are my new family. He reconstituted family through those who were gathered and called from different places, different people. He made a new community. Finally, so it's a, it's a, it's a Eucharist, it's a Lord's Supper, it's a Holy Communion, and finally, it's a Mass. It's a word we don't use very often in our church. We often associate it with Roman Catholic celebrations, the Mass, but it comes from the Latin term missio, meaning to be sent. And actually when we are nourished, when we're reminded of all that Jesus has done for us in his cross and his resurrection, we're reminded of who we are, who our identity is, what the church is, we are, we are reminded, we are commissioned to go out into the world sharing good news. 
The ministry of reconciliation is entrusted to us. Nobody else is going to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world other than you, me, us, in this place. We can't leave it to anybody else. We are the ones who are called. And the Mass reminds us that we are sent out to be good news, to live good news, to share and proclaim good news with our families, with our friends, with our neighbours, with our work colleagues, wherever we are the rest of the week. So four things. Final brief aside, because we've been thinking about this quite a lot as a church leadership in PCC, about the fact that Holy Communion is for all baptized Christians. If you're a baptized Christian, you are a member of Christ. You are, you are, you've been brought into this new covenant community. And I've just said that this meal is the kind of renewal ceremony for this new covenant community. What then about children? What then about children? Well, we believe that children, baptized children, should also be free to come and receive the bread and wine of Holy Communion. And too often we've set up a barrier and we've sort of welcomed children in church but only in certain places or parts of the service. We think that children and young people who are baptised should also be welcomed to receive the bread and wine. And we've been doing some thinking about that, about how that's going to run, how we're going to practice that. And it means we'll make some changes over the next couple of months. We're going to write to the bishop and talk about our plans. We want to make sure that children are well prepared through our connect groups, through our youth groups, to understand what's going on in Holy Communion. Um, but we also want to look at changing our wine to be non-alcoholic wine changing our bread to be gluten-free bread so that anybody with intolerances can join in and participate we, we don't want to set up barriers to this covenant renewal meal it's so important why would, we, why, would we, why would we welcome children by baptism into a new family and then starve them for 15 years it's absurd really when you think about it so watch this space. There'll be probably a pastoral letter or something coming out in the next couple of months. The vital thing to remember is that baptism and Holy Communion are a means of grace. They are a, a means by which God communicates his grace, his love for us, to us. When we baptize, we are recognizing the grace of God given through the death of Christ that every man, woman, and child may know what it is to be reconciled to God may know the peace and the love and the joy that they may be grafted into Christ that they may become members of this new family Holy Communion is a means of grace that nourishes us that expresses our thanksgiving that recognises one another and remembers Christ's body and sends us out into the world to live and work as we say to his praise and glory Let's pray.